It has been a wild season, and uh, God is on the move, amen? We are trying to hear his voice and obey and uh, walk through the process, and what's uh, kind of funny is I heard on the news, I think last week, that... Uh, the phrase, trust the process, that Joel Embiid is a basketball player over in uh, Philadelphia is uh, trying to trademark it. So I thought I would use it for our series title before I had to pay royalties. And so, uh, so we're going to walk through a series the next several weeks called Trust the, uh, Trust the Process. And it's an interesting thing to recognize that the God of the universe, who literally when he speaks... Things are created. Think about that. He said, let there be light, and light is still moving across and creating the galaxy. It's still growing and expanding. His words are still active and moving. That the God of the universe looks down from heaven and with intentionality creates us. And then he says, I want to know you relationally. Then not only that, he says, I have a plan and a purpose for your life and want to partner with you as you do that. The God of the universe does all of that with us and partners with us. If that's true, if that's really what we say we believe, then trusting the process becomes a little bit more reasonable. But it does challenge me, and it does challenge my heart. I remember the first time I tried to trust the process with God. Isn't it funny that God, God's so kind to us that he kind of meets us right where we're at, the more we grow and understand, the more he gives us. He doesn't give us more than we can handle. Jesus was actually clear that part of the Holy Spirit's role was to help us out because if we got everything that God had from us all, for us all at once, it would overwhelm us and we just couldn't handle it. And so God's kindness towards us to give us peace at a time and a peace at a time so it doesn't overwhelm us. So when I was uh, relatively young, I was uh, 14 years old, the first time I ever tried to trust the process with God was, was kind of silly. I was meeting with my then youth pastor, and I was a relatively new Christian, and I had kind of a bad reputation. 14-year-old Mike uh, was, had a little bit of an identity crisis. You know, my pops wasn't around. My stepdad was kind of mean, and, and uh, we had kind of a rough situation. And so I just was trying to blend into whatever group I thought would be the cool group. And so for a while, I was, uh, I was Nerd Mike, and then I realized Nerd Mike wasn't going to get me too far at school. So I switched over to Jock Mike, and then uh, Jock Mike was pretty good for a season there. Um, I, I hit kind of, uh, uh, I, I grew earlier than everyone else, so I dominated until about 13, 14, then everyone caught up and pass me up. So Jock Mike wasn't working out anymore. So then I went with wannabe gangster Mike. I wasn't cool enough to be in the actual gangster group, but you know, I had the little, uh, the little cassette tapes. Um, millennials ask your parents about them. They're awesome things. But we used to get little underground tapes that uh, in, the, in the East Bay area from music that was coming out from Oakland and, and stuff like that. We'd get these tapes, and, and it was you know, just filled with obscenity and ridiculousness. But we were gangster because we had these, little, these tapes of music. And I started embracing that. I got a Bulls parka uh, because that's what cool wannabe gangsters wore in 97-degree weather in California. Or our parkas, and uh, you know, I tried that out for a while. That didn't uh, work too well. I couldn't couldn't break through the wannabe part of the wannabe gangster part. So then I tried to be um, be a player. Come on now, right? I tried to be a player, and uh, I started trying to chase chase girls and see if that worked out for me. I, um, I won't say how successful I was. Let's just say it wasn't working out for me in the long term. And uh, and so in the midst of all that, I met Jesus. 
and, and learned about this heavenly father who had a plan for me that there was intentionality behind my existence. I wasn't the accident that, that people said that I was growing up and that there was a plan and a purpose. And I was trying to figure out who in the world I was. What was the process of this? And in the midst of this uh, player phase that I was running through and I was sitting down meeting with my youth pastor and he asked me about my reputation. And he said, what? What is it about you that everyone I talk to says you're kind of this way? And I kind of laughed because I was proud that I had been identified as anything, <laughs> right? I was like, that's awesome. And he said, do you think that's a good thing or a bad thing that, that people view you as a player? And I was like, oh, this must be a trick question. It's one of those Jesus questions. The answer has to be Jesus, but I don't know how to answer this question. <laughs> and so I was like, bad thing? He's like, okay, so if it's a bad thing, then how do, we, how do we help you break this reputation? And long story short, we came up with a plan. And I may have shared bits of this before, but the plan was that I was going to create a list of characteristics in someone that was worth dating, having a relationship with. And then he challenged me because he knew I was competitive. And he said, and I will pay for your first date with someone who meets the qualifications of your list if you'll wait and not date anyone until they meet all the qualifications of your list. It was a brilliant, crazy strategy of his part because he's literally encouraging a 14-year-old to go on the hunt, but, but he was desperate. <laughs> he was desperate, and so he was making any moves he could make, right? I won't get too far along into the story. Let's just say I had a list, and it was about 10 different ways to say good-looking because that's all I knew at 14, and then the last thing I wrote was Christian because I knew he was going to look at it. <laughs> so we looked at our list a couple weeks later, and he kindly said, Mike, that's a great list. If you wait until you meet someone or choose someone that meets the qualifications list, I will, I will pay for your first date. I said, oh, I got this. Well, days turns into weeks and weeks turns into months. And player Mike is not successful at finding someone because anyone who had these kind of morals at this point wasn't, wasn't around me. And I was having a hard time. This is like fishing in a whole new pond. Come on now, I didn't have the right bait. I wasn't the right guy to catch someone that was like this. And, and uh, a long story short, it was a very difficult time to trust the process. And we talked and we would meet, my youth pastor and I, and he would say, he would say, God has someone for you who will meet your list. And, and you can trust God and you can wait. And I'm thinking, no, this is awful. Like Christmas went by and I didn't have a, a girlfriend. Come on now. Valentine's Day was coming and I hadn't found someone to spend time with. And my whole identity was wrapped around trying to explore these different things. And I wasn't in the gangster crew anymore. And if I wasn't a player, then who was I? And here I am trying to trust the process, trying to trust that God is in it and going to uh, 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 provide someone who meets the qualifications of, our, of my list. So I show up at church on Valentine's Day. It's on a Sunday. And this beautiful Asian gal has a dozen or so white roses, right? And she's walking through her friend group and she's just giving them all one. Well, I'm sitting in the middle of a friend group, but we ain't friends. And out of kindness, she gives me one of these roses also. Basically just a mercy so I'm not the only kid in the row that doesn't have one. I got home that night and I'm like, she's the one. So I called my youth pastor, and I was like, what about Christine? He's like, she's amazing. She totally fits the qualities of your list. And I was like, that's it, I'm calling her. 
So I call over to her house, but she's not there. She's babysitting for someone. I talked to her sister. It's Valentine's Day. My cousin has a party going on. Her birthday's right around then. And I'm trying to get a date to this thing that I want to go to. And I'm trying to, like, the process is finally working. But I can't get a hold of her. It's pre-cell phone, pre-pager. There was a time, guys, uh, millennials, let me talk to you for a second. If you weren't close to a wall that had an outlet in it with a phone jack and a cable running to it, we couldn't call you. There was no way to get a hold of you. Like there was, you couldn't send carrier pigeon. There was nothing. So I can't get a hold of this girl. And I have this tense moment of trusting the process because there was another girl. There's always another girl. Come on now. And she didn't meet the qualities of my list, but she was certainly interested in going and hanging out. And I had this tense moment. The first time I ever had to trust God and trust the process. And I had to say, all right, God, do I stay home, risk my identity? Mike, the player doesn't go to the thing. Risk it all to trust that the thing you have for me is better. Or do I just settle, blow off the whole expectation and take out this other person who I know will go? And Pastor Mike had to trust the process. The year was 1993 and the girl's still sitting right there. Sometimes we gotta trust the process, church. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about trusting the process over the next several weeks. And the first point I wanna make to you is simply this, don't manhandle God's plan. Don't manhandle God's plan. The reason I use that language, because I, I love the, the visual picture of man trying to grab it and handle it. And don't manhandle God's plan. I had an opportunity way back in 1993 to manhandle God's plan. Hey, she didn't answer the phone. She wasn't there. I tried. Now I got decisions to make and things to do. And I can just pivot away from God's plan and make it work on my own. But that manhandling of God's plan always leads to disaster. So for the next several weeks, we're going to walk through this incredible story of a group of people wrestling with the idea that God has a plan. God's spoken the truth of his plan, but in the meantime, in the between, they have got to trust the process. And if they trust the process, they will experience the provision and the blessing that God has promised. And most of them go on that journey, but we're gonna start the conversation talking about a guy who didn't trust the process. And because of that, he manhandled God's plan. If you have your Bibles, would you open them up with me? And I'm gonna be in the book of 1 Samuel, kind of towards the front third of the Bible there. And if you, were, if you were with us on Mother's Day, we actually met Samuel just quickly as the child that Hannah had. And Hannah had to trust the process because she was having a difficult time getting pregnant. And you can go back and listen to that online if you want. And in the midst of all that, she made a promise to God that if God would answer her prayer, that she would then trust God with her child. And that child becomes Samuel. And we have the book of First and Second Samuel because of that trusting of the process. So we meet Samuel. Now Samuel's in this incredible moment in history. The book of Judges has, uh, has happened. Israel's had no king. They're in the promised land. And Samuel is basically the last judge. He's the prophet at the end of kind of this season of people having to trust God as their king, but they want their own king. So there's this incredible, I, I don't have time to go through the, all of the history, but I'll just give you kind of the short strokes of the history. Samuel's led the people of Israel. They've had relative uh, uh, safety and peace because they've trusted God. He's getting a little bit older 
older and Samuel's kids don't turn out so well. They're pretty wicked. And as a result, the people are starting to get nervous because they want to trust that God's in control, but they really want to see a person in front who's in control that they can trust. And so they tell Samuel, listen, we want a king like everyone else has a king. We want to be the same kind of group of people that everyone else is. We want a king just like everyone else. And Samuel says, hold on, hold on, hold on. Be careful what you're asking for. Because you understand in our structure, in our system, God sits on the throne and God is the king. And they say, no, 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 no. We don't want God to be the king. We want a person to be the king, just like other people. When we go to battle, we want to point at that and say, that's our guy. He's who we have. We want him to be the king. And so there's this kind of wrestling match, and Samuel's disgusted with them, and he goes and talks to the Lord, and the Lord says, listen, it's not you they've rejected. It's me. So we're going to give them what they want, and they're going to have the consequences of getting that. They start manhandling God's plan. Come on now. And I just want you to remember something as we get into the story a little bit here. If you are a follower of Jesus, we only have one king. We only have one king. We have different leaders. You'll have different pastors. You'll have different people in different roles in your life. You'll have different mentors. But in your life, on the throne of your heart, we only have one king, and that's the Lord. And these guys forgot that critical thing. And here's what happens, it happens to all of us. We say and give lip service and say, yeah, we want God to be the king, but what we really want is to say that, but then have our life work out the way we want it to work out, like we're the king. And that's a very tense little situation that we walk into in this story, is God's trying to say, hey, I need to be first in your heart, in your life. Your relationship with me has to come first. And they said, yeah, 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 but we want someone else to kind of be the go-between. And so they start crying out for a king. And, and uh, over the, the first half of 1 Samuel, we meet Samuel about chapter 8, 9, 10, 11. I'm just paraphrasing the story that happens here. Samuel hears from God and he says, okay, uh, we're gonna find the person that God has called to be uh, king in this season. And they go out and they choose a man named Saul. Now, Saul's an interesting character. Basically, the couple things we know about Saul, um, he's not very confident, but he is tall and good looking. So he stands out a little bit in a crowd. And those are characteristics that they kind of are drawn to. They say, okay, he's good looking, he's tall. Um, He's actually quite humble when we first meet him. Uh, He's not very confident. He's like, I'm just from a, a modest tribe. There's not very many of us. I don't have much influence. And he's the person that they call and choose to be the king. So Samuel anoints him as king, and that starts the next season of the history of Israel. And we're gonna meet everything changes there. And I'm in 1 Samuel chapter 13. I'm going to begin at verse 1, and we're going to have a a little bit of story time about Saul, and then Saul is going to lead us to this guy that we all know named David. And we're going to end today, just in case you're wondering where we're going, you're going to check out on me. We're going to end today with David being selected to be the person that God has appointed to lead, but this giant gap of time that still is about to happen and how he's preparing for that and how the people of God are preparing for that in the middle of it. But it starts with this tension. We can't get to David if we don't talk a little bit about Saul. Chapter 13, verse one, we learn that Saul is 30 years old when he becomes the king. And he ends up reigning over Israel for 42 years. That's no joke. He has a long, long, long stretch of leadership ahead of him. He's 72 years old when he dies. And here's what I was thinking as I was reading this. Do the thing God calls you to do and do it your whole life. 
he's gonna be called at age 30 to go do something and he's gonna do it for his whole life. He's, he doesn't retire. He does it till he dies. I think um, sometimes we think we retire from serving God or we go through seasons of being who God's called us to be and then it's time to engage and then disengage. If God's called you, you're a minister of the gospel, be that for the entire run of your life. Your role may change, but never stop. He's 72 years old when he dies. Verse two, it says, so Saul becomes king and uh, he starts consolidating some power. And it says, Saul chose 3,000 men from Israel. 2,000 were with him at Michmash in the hill country of Bethel and 1,000 were with Jonathan, his son, at Gibeah and Benjamin. The rest of the men he sent back to their homes. And so they got a group of people 3,000 strong. It's got to feel pretty big and pretty good. Saul wasn't that uh, influential before. He had like two people with him before. Now he's got 3,000 people with him before and they're gathering. You got to remember at this time, Israel has a lot of enemies. They've been in the promised land. Those enemies keep coming and uh, kind of uh, pressing them. And it says in verse three that Jonathan, remember Jonathan has a thousand dudes with him. It says he attacked the Philistine outpost at Geba and the Philistines heard about it. And then Saul had the trumpet blown throughout the land and said, let the Hebrews hear. So they have their first military uh, action with a king. And it's Jonathan actually who takes the initiative. It's not Saul. It's his son, Jonathan, who takes the initiative and he attacks an outpost. And then Saul says, let everyone know, verse four, so all Israel heard the news that Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost. Now, wait a second. Who attacked the Philistine outpost? It's gonna be a theme in Saul's life coming through here. Jonathan attacks the outpost, but Saul says, blow the trumpet in every town and let them know that I have started something here. Hmm. So all Israel heard the news. Saul has attacked the Philistine outpost, and now Israel has become obnoxious to the Philistines. And the people were summoned to join Saul at Gilgal. So he says, hey, I want everyone to know that I have started the battle and we are now obnoxious. That's a great rallying cry. If you want to come and be obnoxious with me, let's go be obnoxious to these Philistines. They keep oppressing us. We're going to be obnoxious back to them. They're going to get into the fight a little bit here. Saul wins the battle, or Jonathan wins a battle, and Saul's busy taking credit. You guys ever met someone that's got to get credit for everybody's stuff? You start telling a story about what God did in your life, and they're like, hey, remember you called me, and I gave you some advice on that too? They like this one. They want to interject their name into your story, your success. You can't hear a victory story at all without it somehow coming back to them. And they're just, they just need a little credit for everything. Oh yeah, I met with them once or I read that. I saw, like they just want to interject themselves into every story. Just be a little weary, a little wary of folks that can't celebrate someone else's success. It's got to be about them. It's probably an outward sign of some maybe danger on the inside there. If they can't celebrate, if you're with someone and they can't ever celebrate your success, come on now. That's not a healthy relationship. That's not a healthy relationship. Now, there's some people who just talk too much, and we got, we got that. That's okay, right? That's different. Don't go hammering all your friends that talk too much. I'm one of those. We got a lot of people who talk too much. That's okay. But this is different. This is, they got to interject and steal, come on now, the limelight and the energy and the hope and the glory out of your story. God wants to do something in your life and they're trying to take and get their hands on that. Just be wary of that. 
Saul comes onto the scene, and all we know about him so far, he's tall, he's good-looking, he's 30, he's got a kid, his kid's tough, starts the battle, and he wants the credit. And he's kind of proud of being obnoxious. It's interesting. What he didn't realize is the response he was going to get from the Philistines. He's thinking, hey, I'm the king. We haven't ever had a king before. We got 3,000 people. We are strong now. We're obnoxious to these Philistines. And then look at verse 5. It says, so the Philistines assembled to fight Israel with 3,000 chariots, 6,000 charioteers, and soldiers as numerous as the sand on the seashore. They went up and camped at Michmash east of Beth-Avon. So, you thought your 3,000 men were great? I've got 3,000 tanks, plus more men than you can count. This is not a fair fight. This is not looking great. Initially, Saul, his ego is inflated. He's, now, he's received kind of the, the adoration of some people. He's become the king, and they've initiated a battle. He took credit for the battle, even though he didn't initiate it. And, and the Philistines are like, really? Really? You think you're all that? You got 100 guys, we got 100 tanks. I mean, it's just what it is. So verse 6, it says, When the Israelites saw that their situation was critical and that the army was hard-pressed, no kidding, look at their response. They hid in caves and thickets among the rocks, the pits, and the cisterns. Deuce. They peaced out. His 3,000 men scattered. And they're in, you know, cisterns are like dug out wells. They're like hiding down the well. They're in the rocks. They're in the caves. They're like, you know, they're camouflaging themselves up like I'm a bush. You know, they're just, they're just out there, not in the fight. Any way to not be in the fight, they are not in the fight. This is what the result is of this, uh, of this whole uh, initiation. Now, I skipped over this in the intro, but, uh, but Samuel had already met with Saul and told Saul how this battle was going to go, which is part of why Saul's confidence starts really high. And he tells him, I'm going to meet you there. I'll be there in seven days. When I get there, we'll have an offering. We'll invite the Lord's presence into this thing, and then we'll go win the battle. And, uh, and so Saul starts with this courage of having talked to Samuel, which sort of inflates some of his ego. But now he starts seeing the actual battle that he's going to have to fight, and it shrivels the courage of the people, and they're hiding. Verse 7 says, some Hebrews even crossed the Jordan to the land of Gad and Gilead. They literally jumped across the river and just bailed. Saul remained at Gilgal, and all the troops with him were what? Quaking with fear. They saw the potential danger ahead of them, and no longer was the promise of God sufficient that they were going to be able to win this thing. It no longer was instilling them with courage. Instead, the situation ahead of them deflated and took apart their courage. They're quaky with fear and they lose heart. They were so excited to get a king. And they were like, we won't even need God's help. We won't even need God's help. If we had a king, we'd be like just the other, all the other armies. They don't have God's help and they want us. If we had a king, that'd be enough. And then the moment they see the battle in front of them, they lose heart. They should have a lot of heart. They got Saul now. What do they need God for? What do they need help for? But the party's over. They're hiding in wells. They're crossing the river. They're high, pretending they're a bush. They're digging holes. I mean, they're just out. The king is just one man. What chance does he have with these odds? Verse eight. 
He waited seven days. This was the time that was set by Samuel, but Samuel didn't come to Gilgal and Saul's men began to scatter. Even the ones that had stayed, they're just like, thanks for the memories, king. It was a good run. We'll always remember you in effigy. Good luck with the battle. You'll go down in history as the shortest uh, tenured king, but you were the first king, so congrats. So Saul panics verse nine, and he says, bring me the burnt offering and the fellowship offering. And Saul offered up the burnt offering. He knew that the people were used to seeing someone talk to God on their behalf and get God's blessing and provision before they went out. And he knew that that wasn't his job as the king, but he knew that would be something that might get them encouraged. And so he's like, I'll just do it. Look at verse 10. Just as he finished making the offering, Samuel arrives. And Saul went out to greet him. Now, Samuel had told him, I'll show up and I'll do that part. I'm the prophet. I'll bring the thing that that you will need in order to be successful. I'll be there in seven days. I will pray. I'll do the offering and we'll get there. Saul looks around and he goes, man, it's not happening and it's the time. I'm just gonna go ahead and do all the things that I think should happen anyways. And just at God having a sense of humor, it says, just as he finished making that offering, Samuel arrived and Saul went out to greet him. Guys, I don't want you to forget that God is always right on time. God is always right on time. The same God who looks down from heaven and sees everything knows exactly what you're facing. He knows what you're facing in your marriage. He knows what you're facing in your relationships. He knows what you're facing at work. He knows what our church is facing. He knows all of that. And if you're looking around going, man, they're, they're, they got tanks and we got nothing. Where is God? Do not forget that God is always right on time. He is always right on time. We live in a culture that likes to speed things up. We can't even wait. Come on now. We got toast and toasters and we're sitting by the toaster like, come on. Give me the toast, right? It's like, psh, right? I don't even go to microwaves. We can't, like, we let's just be honest with you. So yesterday we had a, a, a double header of, of little league baseball basically and for my eight-year-old and we had like a two-hour window between games which is the worst because we weren't close to anything so we had to drive like 20 minutes to get to something and then like get food and come back or whatever and my son was like, I just want to go home. I'm like, we're going to be home for maybe 15 minutes and you're going to have to turn around and go and I was like, all right, fine. Well, we don't have time to get make food. We'll just go through the drive-thru and I went through the drive-thru and Christine can attest to this because I lost my mind. There's like three cars. I won't say which place Jack in the Box because they were so slow. But uh, did I? That came through? My inner dialogue sometimes. I can't tell you. It was 22 minutes. There's three cars. I don't know what happened. I don't know what they were doing inside, that they weren't helping customers. I'm not judging anymore. (laughs) I was in the moment. I'm just telling you, it took a long time to get four cheeseburgers. And I was losing my mind. And we live in a culture, I was literally texting my wife. I could have, I, you could have started the barbecue and I could have stopped and grabbed food. I could have grilled better burgers and we'd be home eating eight minutes ago. This is insane, I'm losing my mind. But we live in a culture that has no tolerance for things to take time anymore. And it, it, everything is sold and marketed to us that we should be able to have it and we should be able to have it now. You don't have to save money for that. Just borrow money for that. Whoo. You don't have to pay that off. Just bankrupt it, right? You don't have to wait for that food. Someone will make it for you faster right now. 
You want your coffee ready for you? Just swipe on your app. It'll be sitting there for you. We have no tolerance for the process anymore. It is so hard for us. And church, I'm going to be honest with you. In this next season, trusting the process is going to feel so hard. Because we don't have, we don't have tolerance for that. But the scripture is filled with story after story after story of person who God called. And then there's a season and a process of preparation. And the action and behavior while they're in the process determines the destiny of what God's called and chosen them to do. Whether or not God can use them and maintain relationship or whether that blessing moves to the next person. God's always going to get his way. But if you want to experience the full blessing of what God has, we have to learn to trust that God is always right on time. And sometimes our timing is not the right timing. It's just not. Might have been right in our eyes, but we only got 20-20 vision, if we're lucky. Or if we've been medically enhanced (laughs) to get there. God can see the whole thing, the whole picture, past, present, and future. And he's like, I got this. Trust my timing. So Saul manhandles it because it doesn't seem like God's doing it in the timing that he wants gets out of the car, kicks open the door, says, what are you guys doing back here? Make my hamburger. I'll make my own hamburger, right? That's a picture of what's happening here, right? You just can't wait for the thing to happen in the timing that God has designed it to happen in. So he manhandles the plan. Sometimes I think we try to make excuses for God's timing. And it's like, God's right on timing, on time. It's you that's off, (laughs) Maybe I, I, I said that. Let me try to say that again. We start making excuses for God's timing, and it's like God's right on time. It's us that's off. We should be making excuses for our expectation, not his timing. So Samuel shows up, and he sees this offering, and he's like, Saul, what have you done? Verse 11, and Samuel asked Samuel, Saul replied, when I saw the men were scattering and that you didn't come at the set time and that the Philistines were assembling, I thought, now the Philistines are gonna come down against me. I haven't sought the Lord's favor, so I felt compelled to offer the burnt offering. It's like, I, I just felt like I had to do it. I had to kick down the door and make my own hamburgers. I felt compelled. I was hungry. Samuel responds, he says, you have done a foolish thing. You haven't kept the command the Lord your God gave you. If you had, he would have established your kingdom over Israel for all time. Let's take a quick look here at how Saul was foolish. I want you to catch this. The first thing is this. He saw the people scatter and he panicked. It was a foolish thing to put my hope in God on the behavior of other people who are around. Right? Let's face it, whenever we're waiting on God, there's going to be some people who scatter. There's going to be people who scatter. In this body, there's going to be people who scatter. In your life, there's going to be people who scatter. You're going to see people going, well, I can't, I can't wait on that. I'm out of here. And they're going to tuck tail and run. And they're going to be hiding under a rock, crossing rivers, pretending they're a bush. I don't know what they're going to be doing. And Saul sees this, and he goes, oh, I have to respond to the behavior of someone else, not to the call of God. And that's a mistake. That was foolish. The second thing, he was foolish because God's timing seemed to take longer than he wanted. He's like, I want this to happen now. I can see the danger. I can see the potential end result of if it doesn't happen in the timing that I want it to happen in. And so because of that, he's like, I will just manhandle the plan. And then the, the third is he felt compelled to do God's part of the plan. 
He said, I felt compelled to take care of God. God hadn't done his part yet, so I felt compelled to just jump in and do God's part of the plan. I knew God said there was a plan, and I had to wait for the man of God that was called to come and do that part, but I felt compelled, so I just went ahead and did it. Trying to force in the plan is never a good idea. So look at Samuel's response. Verse 14. He said, well, verse 13, he says, if you would have just listened, God would have blessed you and would have taken care of you and, and your kingdom would have been over Israel for all time. But now your kingdom, verse 14, will not endure. The Lord has sought out, this is gonna be a critical point, a man after his own heart and appointed him ruler of his people because you haven't kept the Lord's command. Says then Samuel left Gilgal and went to Gibeah and Benjamin, and Saul counted the men who were with him, and they numbered about six hundred. Nothing like a first successful gathering of the king. He took his congregation from three thousand to six hundred, like that. This king isn't off to a great start, and we see this incredible dialogue. And Samuel, who's an old man now at this point, looks at Saul and says, "This isn't going to work out now." God has to find someone who has a heart to trust him. And it doesn't look like you're going to do it. So over the next chapter or so, we see the battle and Jonathan gets involved and God shows up and blesses them. And, and uh, they win the battle, even though it's kind of a, an awkward mess. And if you jump to chapter uh, 15, I'm going to continue this lane of the story. So I want you to see kind of this progression that happens in Saul's Life. They win that battle versus the Philistines because God is faithful. He still shows up. And in chapter 15, verse 1, another battle is about to happen. And Samuel says to Saul, I'm the, Lord, the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over the people of Israel. So now listen to the message of the Lord. Samuel says, listen, I'm the one who caused you to become the king. So trust me when I tell you this is what the Lord is saying, okay? And he says, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I'm gonna punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. So now go attack the Amalekites and totally destroy all that belongs to them. Listen to this, don't spare them, put to death women, men, children, infants, cattle, sheep, camels, donkeys, like just wipe this whole thing out. There's a whole story there. We won't get into it right now. He's just saying, clearly the entire culture is so contaminated, it's time to press reset on what's going on here. It says, then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilashur to near the eastern border of Europe. And listen to this, verse eight. This is what I want you to catch. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive. And all his people were totally destroyed by the sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and cattle, the fat calves and the lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely, but everything that was despised and weak, they totally destroyed. Then the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I've made Saul king because he's turned away from me and not carried out my instructions. And Samuel was angry and he cried out to the Lord all that night. I just want you to catch this. The next big battle happens and Samuel shows up and he's like, all right, Saul, here's the next big battle. We got to clean house a little bit here. And if you go back through the book of Judges, you'll see why the Amalekites had to get out of there. He's like, we got to completely eliminate this people group that are trying to uh, contaminate and, and destroy the people of God. So you're going to lead the battle and there's going to be a picture of not even a trace, not even a hint of this other culture is going to be allowed to coexist with our culture as we go. So you're going to go in there and you're going to wipe everything out. And Saul says, okay, I got this. And he goes in there and he goes to wipe everything out. And he's like, but it's pretty awesome to capture their king and parade him around. So we want to capture him because that makes me look good. And, you know, there's some fat calves there. Like, we can kill the skinny ones. They're not going to be that good. But have you had the steak of a fattened calf? 
We're going to keep that, and we're going to keep a few other things, some of the sheep and the lambs. That's pretty good stuff. And so Samuel hears from the Lord, hey, Saul didn't obey. And he's like, come on. What's with this guy? And it says he's frustrated, and he's angry. Why? Because Saul keeps manhandling God's plan. Time and time again, God's like, this is what you have to do to bring success. You have to have some faith. You're going to have to trust me. Your resource is going to come from me. Don't try to steal the resource out of something else. It's going to come from me. That's why I don't want you to take any of that resource. You're going to utilize, a tr- you're going to trust me, and they're going to learn to re- rely on me. I don't have these verses up on the screen, but a little bit later when, Sam, when Saul shows up, uh, Samuel shows up, he tells him in verse 17, he says, although you were once small in your own eyes, you didn't become the head of the tribes of Israel. The Lord anointed you king over Israel and sent you on a mission to destroy those wicked people, the Malachites, and wage war against them until you've wiped them out. He says, listen, you used to be small in your own eyes. You used to have humility. Part of why God was able to choose you, even though you were tall and good looking, you weren't arrogant. You came to God with, a, with, a, with a, a heart of humility that said, I'm not from the greatest tribe. Why would God choose me? And that uniquely positioned you for some leadership. And as soon as you had leadership, you were like, I don't need God's help. I'm going to take and plunder and do whatever I want to do. God promoted you because you were humble, and immediately that got to your head, like you did something. Sometimes the thing God does in your life, you think you did in your life. Verse 19. He goes, why did you not obey the Lord? Whew, that's a tattoo. (laughs) Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of the Lord? Verse 20. But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Malachites and I brought back Agag their king. Was that the mission? (laughs) That's like talking to your kid, right? Why didn't you clean your room? Well, I did clean my room. I picked up my socks. Okay, let's have a conversation. <laughs> let's walk over and look at the room. Is this the thing I asked you to do? No, yeah, no. And it's like, okay. When you start manhandling God's plan, you'll start making excuses for your behavior. I just want you to know what we call that in every other uh, environment. We call that lying. Right? And you start saying, well, I am trusting God, but I'm also just manhandling it at the same time. But I am trusting God. That's called lying. Verse 21, it says, well, the soldiers took the sheep and cattle from the plumber, from the plunder. Right? Again, defer, defer, deflect. I only took Agag. But the soldiers, they took the sheep and cattle from the plunder, the best of what was devoted to God. But here's why they did it. In order to sacrifice them to the Lord, your God at Gilgal. The stories, we're spinning. Samuel replied, does the Lord delight in burnt offering and sacrifice as much as in obeying the Lord? To obey is better than sacrifice and to heed is better than the fat of rams. Saul is utterly disobedient. He is completely trying to disobey God. Here's the thing. You cannot get to the right destination if you start going the wrong direction. If you want God's best, but you're not willing to wait for it, so you start taking off in another direction. Come on, we talked about this a couple years ago when we talked about the principle of the path. You are never gonna get on I-5 South and get to Seattle. No matter how bad you want, if you start going the wrong direction, you will not get to the right destination. Faith is not the, the, the substitute for direction in that case. Does that make sense? You can't say, God, I'm just gonna pray. I'm gonna get on I-5 South and pray that I end up in Seattle. 
That's not how it works. Obedience is part of the process. If God says, you want to get to Seattle, you're going to have to take a turn. And you're like, I don't want to turn, God, but I still want to get to Seattle. It doesn't work that way. And Saul is completely trying to justify, I'm going to go the way I want to go, even though God's calling me this way, but I still want all of the benefit and reward of trusting God without actually trusting him. He's utterly disobedient. So Samuel finally tells Saul, he's like, that's a wrap. The kingdom's just going away. In uh, verse 30, this is not a screen, Saul actually says, I know I've sinned, but just honor me before the elders of the people, before Israel, and come back with me so that I may worship the Lord your God. I love this picture. So, so Saul's like, okay, you're right. I blew it. Will you do me a favor, though, Samuel? Will you at least walk out in front of the people with me so that they can see me still standing next to you? So that they don't really put together the disobedience that I've experienced. So that the look is still good. Remember we had this conversation just a second ago about God looking at hearts? Samuel is convinced that the external picture of him as a leader is more important than the condition of his heart and his obedience to God. He's manhandling God's plan and it's absolutely sabotaging. And here's the thing, the Lord is looking for people who have the right heart. You wanna experience the benefit of God. You wanna trust the process. It's gonna start with what's going on in this place. Do you trust God? Do you have faith in God? Do you believe that God is who he says he is? How is your heart before the Lord? Samuel tells Saul, that's a wrap. I'm not even gonna see you anymore. I'm gonna go and I'm gonna anoint the next person who's gonna be king after you and then I'm out of here. I can't even keep interacting with you. I'm not gonna be your arm candy so you can march me in front of the people so they can think that God's blessing is with you when you're dishonoring and disobeying God. So then Samuel leaves he kind of sneaks off because he doesn't want Saul to freak out. And he goes looking for the person who God has called and prepared because now the anointing is moving away from Saul. And if you flip the page over to 1 Samuel 16, he shows up at a guy named Jesse's house. Jesse has a bunch of sons and he's looking for someone who the Lord said, this is gonna be the person that is gonna be the next king. And he's, remember Saul's gonna lead for how many years? 42 years. He's been leading now for a little while, but he's looking for the guy who's going to be the next king. And so he begins having a conversation with Jesse, and Jesse's like, I got a bunch of kids, so you can look at them. And he starts marching these kids through, these young men. And Saul's having a, uh, Samuel's looking at him. He's like, mm. and if you look at verse 7, it says, but the Lord said to Samuel, don't consider his appearance or his height. Come on, somebody. For I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't look at the things that people look at. And here's the whole picture. He says, people look at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. That's God's word to Samuel as he's communicating to Jesse. He's like, you're gonna bring in all your sons, but I'm looking for the one who has the right heart. So Jesse called Aminadab and had him press in front of Samuel. And Samuel's like, that's not that guy. Then, then he had Shema pass by Samuel, and he's like, the Lord hasn't chosen this one. Jesse actually had seven of his sons pass before Samuel, but Samuel said to him, the Lord hasn't chosen any of these. And then he asked Jesse, are these all the sons you have? And he goes, well, they're still the youngest. He's out tending the sheep. And Samuel said, send for him. I won't even sit down till he arrives. So he sent for him, and he had him brought in, and he was glowing with health and had a fine appearance and handsome features. And the Lord said, rise and anoint him. This is the one. Now, this is crazy because we don't know exactly how old Jess, uh, David is at this moment, but it's somewhere between eight and 15 years old. Somewhere between age eight and 15, Samuel says, you're the next king. 
and anoints him to be king. That's crazy. Can you imagine parents of teenagers? Someone walked into your preteen or teenager and was like, this guy's going to be king. Yet that's exactly what happens. And here's Samuel saying, there's something about this kid's heart that's going to prepare him for that. So how do we trust the process? Let me give you a couple key keys, and then we'll, we'll wrap it up here. How do we trust the process, and how do we avoid manhandling? And we're going to talk over, over the next couple of weeks about more pieces of this, and we're going to specifically dial in on how God prepares this 8- to 15-year-old boy for the next season of his life before he's king. But that we trust the process. The first thing that we do is we let God be king. We got to let God be king. What is in the first place in your life right now? Is God really first? Is that where your trust is, your hope is? If it's a person, you will fail. Even if that person is you. It was really hard for me when I was uh, about 15 years old. You know, I talk about my youth pastor a lot, but there was really a, a, another kid who mentored me as I first started my journey with Jesus. His name was Brian, and he was the, he was the cool kid who took me in after I failed at all my other identity attempts. He just said, hey, you can just be cool and sit in my lane. You'll be all right. And he would save a seat for me at youth group and took me under his wing. And he was the first person in church world who was a peer who accepted me, told me I was going to be okay, even though I wasn't okay. He brought me along, kind of took me under his wing. And, you know, he prayed with me. We went to camp together and, and uh, he just believed in me. And I mean, I'll tell you something powerful about a 16, 17 year old kid telling a 14, 15 year old kid, hey, you're okay. You're okay. So I was devastated when I found out that Brian was living a secret life, had a secondary life that he was living. He had a church life and another life, and he was partying and running around and doing some things. And when confronted with that, he said, yeah, I'm going to go do all these things because that, that church life is too limiting for me. I don't, wanna, I don't want that anymore. My 15-year-old heart broke. And I remember sitting with my youth pastor just emotionally, just like, is any of this even real? And he asked me, he said, he said, Mike, who is the only person that you can trust with your whole life? Who gets to be first? I said, ah, oh, it's another one of those church questions. I'm assuming the answer is Jesus, but I don't know how that fits into the conversation. And he goes, no, you're right. This time the answer is Jesus. This is the only person that you can trust with your whole heart and your whole life. Every other person will let you down. Every other person is just flawed and on their journey just like you. Every other person can't be the foundation and the trust of your life and your faith. It can only be Jesus. He's like, it can't be me. It's my youth pastor telling me this. He's like, it can't be anybody else. It's going to have to be Jesus. And God's going to bring people in your life who are awesome, and that's great. But in that first place, you've got to let God be king. And I remember walking around my neighborhood just mad, cussing in my prayer life. If you haven't cussed at God and you haven't been there yet, don't worry. It's like, how in the world? All the people in my life leave me. Nobody's the one. Nobody I can trust. I don't know who I am. But if you're real, then I'll put you first. And we'll try this. We'll try this. You got to let God be king. Second, don't manhandle the plan. That's what we're talking about today. Don't, don't, don't get so frustrated in the timing and don't get so frustrated in the process that you're just like, I'll just settle for a, 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 a facsimile of what God really has for me. Don't manhandle the plan. 
Don't feel like it's all on you. Now, you partner. That doesn't say don't take your hands off me. Like, all right, God, Jesus, take the wheel. And you just close your eyes and drive down I-5. Like, don't do that. That would be absurd, right? You partner and you steward what God's entrusted you with. But don't manhandle the plan. It's not all on you. It's not all on you. His timing will always be better than your timing. So you steward, you work hard, and you trust God, and then he accomplishes his will. And here's what's awesome. Then he gets the glory, and it's not on you. You don't have the pressure, and you get to say, look what God has done, and it's awesome. Don't manhandle the plan. Third one, and we're going to spend a lot of time on this in the next couple weeks, but you have to keep your heart right. And it's going to be very easy to let your heart get sideways. It's going to be very easy to let your heart get sideways, get frustrated, get bitter, get mad, get disobedient, get selfish. Your heart has to, listen, it's Saul's heart that disqualifies him. It's not even his behavior. This was blowing my mind yesterday. I was thinking about this. And I didn't have all this part early on. I just, this, this was crazy. I was thinking about this. Think about Saul's behavior and then think about David's behavior. David's behavior, like, puts Saul's behavior to shame. Like, David is an adulterer, a murderer. He's, like, raising his kids crazy. I mean, Saul, the only kid we know, Jonathan, turns out pretty good. Jonathan's like an all-star of the scriptures, one of the few. You look at David's family, and you're just like, this hot mess. And so we know that it wasn't behaviors that disqualified Saul. Saul made some mistakes, but it wasn't behaviors. It wasn't his actions. It wasn't his activity. Just like it's not your actions and your activity that qualify you or disqualify you in the kingdom of God. It always comes down to heart. And God saw something and Samuel called it out in Saul's heart. He saw a pride and an arrogance and a, and a wanting to just fake the thing just to make sure it looked good. And when he saw David, he saw this hot mess, but he saw authenticity and realness. And it was okay to be vulnerable. It was okay to weep and break down. It was okay to cry out, create in me a clean heart, oh God, renew a right spirit in me. Like he saw that and he goes, yeah, I, the, the behavior isn't gonna be the thing that qualifies or disqualifies you. It's always gonna be the heart. And if you have a heart that trusts God, that can be honest and repent. You never see Saul repent. He can't repent because a repent would break the armor, would break the illusion that everything's okay. If you're so concerned with the outward looking okay, that you can't be real and say, yeah, I'm a hot mess right now and I don't know what I'm doing. God's like, that's, that's the thing I can, if you turn that to me, I'll, I'll work with that. But if you gotta, mm, everything's good and just look okay, God's like, I can't, I can't even help you. Like I have to move on from you to someone else. And then you get judgy, right? You're like, I mean, look at how many times Saul ends up chucking a spear at David. If you know the story, it's hilarious, right? He's so frustrated by this young man who's in the midst of their mess, just completely in trust and in love with God. He can't even handle it. And Saul's like, I'm taller and better looking and look at all the stuff I've done. And he's getting credit for what? Just being a mess and trusting God? Are you serious? He can't even, come on, he can't celebrate somebody else's success. It's part of why his heart's so guarded and held up. Yet here's David. And at 8 to 15 years old, Saul's like, that's the heart I'm looking for. That's the one. He was out there tending the sheep. He was out there serving his dad. He wasn't trying to show up. He wasn't concerned about becoming the king. He was just concerned about worshiping and trusting and loving God. And did he make some mistakes? Oh, yes, he did. And we're going to walk into some of those but in the midst of all of that mess, 
that heart that could say, I failed, but I trust you and I need you, God. God's like, I can use that. I can use that so well. I can make the greatest king in the history of, of this. And so would you stand with me? We're gonna pray. And we're gonna pray. Um, this looks like Karen is having an emergency surgery here at one o'clock. And so that just got slipped to me. So we're gonna pray for Karen right now. Um, just that God would show up. And we're gonna pray again that his timing would just be real. That we're gonna pray for you I think there's some of us in the room that need to just let God be king. We've been trying to be king. We're like, I'll just figure this out. God hasn't shown up in my timing. I don't even need him. That didn't work out well for Saul. I'm just saying. There's some of us that are just trying to figure out how we can manhandle the plan. God's saying, don't manhandle the plan. But ultimately, I'm just going to be praying for pure hearts. David writes later, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? It's the person that has clean hands and a pure heart. How can David say clean hands? Those are murderous hands. David didn't even murder strangers. He murdered his most loyal friends for their wife. Like, David is a mess, all right? I don't, we don't talk about that in church that well. Who Uriah really was? Come on now. That was a loyal friend he took out just for convenience sake. Yet something in his heart could turn and repent and recognize and come authentic before the Lord. God was like, I can keep using that heart. So some of you are in the room and you're just like, you don't even know what I've done. I'm like, well, did you murder your friend for his wife? Because you're one up on the guy that the scripture says it's a man after God's own heart. I'm just telling you. There's a lie you're believing if you're telling me, well, you don't know what I've done. You're just believing a lie. That's what I can tell. I don't know what it is, but I know that your comment is ridiculous, according to the scripture. Just saying. And then we're going to pray for Karen. And uh, I don't have details. I just know she's, she's in the hospital and it looks like emergency surgery and it's serious right now. Okay. So let's pray. Would you uh, extend a hand? And uh, we're going to pray for, for Karen right now. Jesus, you're a God of miracles. And you're a God of perfect timing. And we don't know all the details. We don't know what's going on. We just know that you're on the throne and you're in control. And our hope and our trust is in you. Would you guide doctors? And would you be with Harold? And would you be with family? And would you demonstrate your faithfulness and power and authority over sickness here on earth? And would you demonstrate your perfect kindness and love and timing in this moment? I pray in the holy name of Jesus, demonstrate your faithfulness. Do it. And then I pray for those here. Learning to trust you even in this moment having hearts examined and <laughs> trying to figure out how they're going to trust the process. For, for some, uh, it's just trusting the process in, our, in my marriage right now. If I, <laughs> if I had to be honest about how often I messed it up and I'm just trying to make everything look good and God's like, that's not the plan at all. Just be authentic and honest. Admit that you've been human and broken and that you need my help. And I'll come and I'll redeem and restore and renew and revive hearts and lives. God, would you heal marriages, I pray, in this, in, in this room, in this moment. For some, there's just been even just a spiritual frustration and wall that we've put up towards you, Heavenly Father. And it's like we just, we trust you, but only but so far. And would we, I pray in the name of Jesus, I pray just trust you today in ways we'd never even imagined we could. And then would you show up in your perfect timing? And some of us have just been frustrated about your timing for so long that it's like we don't even, we don't even care anymore. We're like emotionally have shut down and you're like, don't go there. I'm looking for hearts in the midst of my plan. I'm trusting. I'm looking for hearts that are trusting me.
Would you demonstrate your faithfulness, I pray in the holy name of Jesus. Amen and amen and amen. Church, would you have an awesome week in the Lord? God bless you. We'll see you next week.